Hello, everyone. It's me, Allison. The show is about to start, but just real fast, a quick reminder. I want to tell you guys, um, if you are doing some shopping, perhaps some Black Friday shopping, holiday shopping, etc. Like Christmas type uh, shopping? Christmas type, any sort of shopping at all. I have put together some lists on Amazon. Lists with things stuff. on them? Daniel, just... <laughs> Pipe down for one second. (laughs) Beauty stuff, makeup stuff, home stuff, kids stuff, podcast equipment, books I recommend, all of this stuff. And Daniel's stuff? Oh, yeah. Daniel's Corner, where I put stuff that I know that he likes. But Daniel has recently gotten way more involved. And he put together a special Christmas spectacular gift guide for you. You guys will not even believe it. I mean, I'm not going to tell you what's on there, but it's literally uh, some things. Lots of things. And well, a whole big stuff. caption explaining if his you process. you know someone who's exactly like me, they are going to love it. And here's where you go to see all of this. Amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. Amazon.com slash shop slash Allison Rosen. And we'll be adding to it. It's nonstop, you guys. Yeah. Okay, here's the show. Bye. You guys, I lied. I said the show was starting right now, but I have one more quick announcement. I'm co-hosting a new podcast. It's brand new. It's called Upworthy Weekly. I'm co-hosting it with a guy named Todd Perry, who I'm having so much fun with, although he is wrong about so many things, especially Christmas music, but also other stuff. But anyway, uh, Upworthy Weekly, we come out on Saturdays. Please give it a listen. Subscribe. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a comment, a review on Apple Podcasts that helps out the show so much, especially because we are brand new. As I've said, between one and four times right now, I've lost track. But anyway, please give it a listen. Uh, it's a lighthearted news podcast. We're taking a look at the most popular and engaging stories from the week before that ran on Upworthy. And it's, uh, it's just what your holidays need. And then when the holiday, when we're past the holidays, it's just what that part of the year needs. It's just exactly what you need. Please listen to it. Upworthy Weekly, new episodes every Saturday, wherever you get your podcasts. Allison Rosen. Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison, with her good times never end. Allison Rosen. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Very excited to welcome my guest to the show. I will bring her in in a sec. Uh, now, normally this would be the spot in the show where I would chat with Tony Thaxton, my producer, aka the bad boy of podcasting, nickname he gave himself. And I like to give him a lot of crap about that, but he is not here today to respond and to reclaim his good name because as you know, he is still somewhere else in the country. He's So he's on tour with Motion City Soundtrack. Their tour has been postponed. They're going to reschedule. He will be coming back, but it's complicated by he drove to Virginia, Michigan. I don't know. He drove to the East Coast with his dog, Bentley, dropped his dog off at his parents, then went to Chicago. It's a whole thing. This is really his story to tell. But anyway, that is why you're not getting that witty repartee 
right at the top between Tony and me that I know you count on. Anyway, enough of that. Um, I don't know how you guys are feeling. I am, uh, I was actually just off, off mic saying to the guest who I'll bring in in a moment. I really wish I could be heading into the new year with this like recharged, refreshed, motivated January 1st, uh, spirit. And I, it feels like the 13th month of the year. Like I just do not, I don't feel that at all. I feel like I need to sleep for 28 hours or more. Um, and I'm wondering if everyone else feels that way too. I think it's just where we are in the pandemic. I think it's having kids who were sick, um, over the holidays. Again, it was not COVID, but still it was like they were, they were sick and it lasted forever. And I've talked to other people now too who also were like, Oh yeah, we were all sick in November, December with not COVID. So whether it was COVID or not, it seems everyone was sick. Okay. Uh, very excited to welcome to my show. She's a journalist. She's a podcaster. She hosts two podcasts, You're Wrong About and You Are Good. She is a singular talent and a juggernaut. And it is crazy how popular her shows are. Uh, please put your hands together for Sarah Marshall. Hello. Tony, put the claps in here. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I've never been called a juggernaut before. It feels amazing. What do you what what kind of like juggernaut synonyms do you usually get? And I think I said juggernaut, but I meant juggernaut. Either way. I mean, I don't know. I feel like there's no synonym for juggernaut. And I don't know what it literally means. I know that it means like, you know, an unstoppable force, um, which I am. But I always picture it as like, I never realized this before, but my mental image when someone says that word is like a ship moving over land in a battle and like one of those big Lord of the Rings battle scenes. But instead of an elephant, it's a ship on land. Right. That's what I am. <laughs> Wait, that's literally what it means or that's what you picture? That's not what it means, but that's what my head comes up with when it has to assign an image to that word, which it apparently does without being asked. No, I love that. I love that. That's what you are. You are a ship moving over land. Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> so you're wrong about is like crazy popular. Um, but just in case anyone listening is unfamiliar with the podcast, let's explain it to them. It is in the history section and mm -hmm. you each episode revisits a topic that perhaps listeners are are wrong about. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I co-founded it with Michael Hobbs. I'm now hosting it solo. And I've certainly gotten a lot of feedback over the three, almost four years now that it's been around of people being like, well, I wasn't wrong about this at the time. And it's like, <laughs> oh, I know it's not called you're wrong about Melanie. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, it's sort of directed at what mainstream media was able to figure out, which often hinges on what story was it the most lucrative for them to be telling. Mm -hmm. um, and that often isn't very nuanced or intelligent and individual people often did have things much better figured out than the kind of fossil record that was left by the news. But unfortunately they weren't being asked at the time. Right. So it's more like they were wrong about. Yeah. It's like, we're looking Kind of the twofold goal, I guess, is to say what was going on in this story? How have we determined, you know, at least more of the truth since this was initially a giant and lucrative news story? Because my favorite and I think the kind of classic episodes 
of the show are the ones about someone like Lorena Bobbitt or Tammy Faye Baker or uh, Fawn Hall and her role in, in Iran-Contra, which is a footnote to that one, but part of what was called, part of what made 1987 the year of the bimbo, this idea that Fawn Hall, Jessica Hahn, and Donna Rice had taken down all these powerful men in America. And really, if you looked at the stories beyond the surface, you're like, yes, there was a beautiful young woman standing there as a powerful man made years worth of terrible decisions, <laughs> decisions and essentially imploded. And so the goal of the show is to try and figure out what actually happened. And then what were we saying was happening at the time, even when the truth was available? And what does our collective myth making say about who we are and what kinds of pseudo truths we choose, even when something closer to reality is very available to us. I mean, I love looking at all the topics that you've covered because for me, it feels like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take a circuitous route to my, my question. Um, <laughs> I remember at one point getting on YouTube and looking up things from Sesame Street that I remember, but that I hadn't seen in years, like this very psychedelic, weird song about the letter D. Like, did that actually mm. exist? And also, like, was there really a, a, a little, like, vignette with two girls in a dollhouse? One, mm -hmm. two, two little. And because I remember that, like, and then a kitten knocks it over and it makes me cry. And... um. And so Smokey I wanted to Robinson really sing. You really got a hold on me to a letter. You surely that can't have happened. <laughs> right. Like I, I, there's this, this nostalgic desire to go back and revisit mm -hmm. things with adult eyes. And mm -hmm. when I look through and I'm a bit older than you are, but when I look through the topics that you guys have covered, it's just like, it's like being able to go back to all these news stories that, that shined so bright from my from my youth mm -hmm. um is there an element of nostalgia in it for you and also it's a two-part question like what was your childhood like mm -hmm. oh great question i mean i spent a lot of my childhood watching tv and so i think that's a huge component of what the show is is that tv is kind of this friend i like 90s tv is a friend i look back on very fondly and now I'm like, oh, man, this this friend I loved had so many issues and we got to <laughs> deal with it. Um, this friend you know, was, was on drugs like that feeling. Yeah, this friend needs an intervention, but a really <laughs> gentle one over a period of many years. Um, and you know what I find really nostalgic and that at the time was being touted correctly as like a sign of the decline of civilization was like stuff like hard copy, the aesthetic of hard copy and like. Remember, like, the noise of the hard copy logo? Because I mm -hmm. think it had to, like, spin as yeah. it went into the screen and it made this big impact noise. Like, ooh, that hard copy. That really is hard copy. It's, make, <laughs> it's like hitting a wall or something. Um, I think the aesthetics of 90s TV news are, in retrospect, you know, at the time they felt and were so overpowered and were so damaging when they were let loose in people's lives. But at the same time, given the standards of communication we have today, they seem incredibly rinky-dink. And also, I guess there's something a little bit nostalgic. And I don't think that it was better this way. It's just that we're not going to have it back. Of like, we were focused like the eye of Sauron on one big story at a time. Mm -hmm. And so like, <laughs> the eye of the press would like, 
you know, swoop over to Clackamas County, Oregon to harass Tanya Harding. And then it would swoop on over to New Hampshire to bother Pam Smart or whatever. But it would it would right. just like be swooping around the country. Yeah, I mean, it was a whole round. a whole summer of OJ Simpson. Yeah, it was like, all right, I'm just going to stay swooped in on L.A. for a while. This is great. Can't look away. It's can't look away TV. Um, and so what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up and what was it like? Oh, um, so aside from watching TV, I grew up uh, in the country outside Portland, Oregon, kind of in farmy country. Um, and then also in Hawaii for several years, which was, you know, I think it's a valuable experience to live in a state that feels very ambivalent about being a state. <laughs> <laughs> Um, more even than like Texas. <laughs> and, um, and I would describe myself as a, a, like a lonely adultified kid. I think when mm. I was a kid, I felt like I was this old soul, which I got positive reinforcement for because I think adults like the idea of old souls because it means you'll sit quietly and read. Um, <laughs> but really I was like a pretty silly hyperactive. I think I was really like a kid on the inside, but I was doing a good job of being as adult as possible on the outside because I was around a lot of adults most of the time. And also it just felt um, safer. Like I was a kid. This is a great, (laughs) this to me explains a lot. And I think I actually shoehorned into my current events that I wanted to talk to you about designing women. So I'm just bringing it up now. I remember when I was in like sixth grade, I went to a school that had a little uniform. We had a little white polo shirt and pink shorts. And I remember coming home and I would sit down on my mom's chair in front of the TV and I would put my hand in my shorts like Al Bundy and I was <laughs> designing women reruns. <laughs> uh, I'm still stuck on the fact that you had a cute uniform with pink shorts because I also yeah. wore a uniform, but we had like a plaid jumper thing and then upper we school had that was a plaid on Tuesdays. skirt. <laughs> Okay, but we had to wear a horrible little jumper on Tuesdays for chapel and we had a little tie. So the only way that I still know a square knot is because I had to do a square knot every week for five years. Got it. So chapel, uh, was it where was your childhood religious? My parents weren't religious. And so they sent me to Episcopalian schools, which in retrospect does make sense because I think Episcopalianism is like it's fun to go to church. Like, that's the aesthetic. They're like, you know what's a cool look? Church. <laughs> Don't really think about it the other days, but it's it's fun. <laughs> okay. So not, because uh, I've, I've interviewed tons of people who talk about just the, like, Catholic guilt that was embedded in yeah. them. So it sounds like you don't have that. I, well, it's funny. I was thinking about that the other day because I feel like I talk about a lot of Catholic content on You're Wrong About because there's some amount of kind of Catholicism leaping into pop culture in the 70s that I see as a base for the satanic panic in the 80s. So I thought about that a lot. Like the exorcism is a, fa- is a fascinating pop culture phenomenon happening in a, a country that's, I think, seem to be becoming terrifyingly secular in that moment, um, which certainly is an anxiety that hasn't gone away. But I feel like I have, I don't have religious guilt, but I do have free floating, just guilt as an agnostic person that just so I feel like, 
I would, I'm sure that Catholicism itself is to blame for lots of guilt, but I bet it also just attaches itself to human guilt and is like, yes. it's mine, it's all mine. <laughs> right, right. I think the reason original sin is like such a pervasive, mm. um, tenacious, it's not the right word, but like yeah. a sticky idea is because we all yeah. respond to it. We all have so, some level of that, right. whether we're, we're like, religious I or not. I knew there was something wrong with me. Thank <laughs> you. That's <laughs> <so> it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So you were, you were an old soul, but you were a silly <laughs> kid on the inside. Um, by the way, I think that I was as well. I was mm. like someone who always, I, well, I felt more comfortable around adults than other kids. I always felt a bit like a misfit yeah. around other kids. What about you? Oh, yeah. And I think adults, you know, now as an adult, I'm like, oh, yeah, adults are have so much more in common with little kids than I as a little kid ever thought to dream. Um, I guess look, we look different, but that's just, <laughs> you know, that doesn't, that's not the whole story. Um but yeah, I think adults maybe behave more predictably. And I was mm -hmm. just, I was very close with my mom. And so I think I was a very verbal kid. And I think that kind of gave the illusion that I was more mature than I was at mm -hmm. times, which is funny now. I think a lot now about how, because I have a bunch of friends who have toddlers or have had toddlers recently. And it's so funny to watch them acquire vocabulary because you say a word once or twice around them and then it's like fully assimilated, you know, they're like <laughs> these little supercomputers. And I was a kid who was often described as having a really big vocabulary. And now I'm like, boy, you got a lot of credit for just having that that tape like brain that little mm -hmm. kids have. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's funny to watch them. Like like you said, they'll hear it once or twice and then it'll assimilate. And they will even if they don't quite know if they're using it right, they will go for it. Like right. They'll try out new words, which <laughs> is fun to watch as well. Um, do you have siblings? I have uh, older half-siblings who are, like, much older than me. So they were fully baked adults okay. by the time I was born. So I got the only child experience. I guess I'm trying – I'm wondering if you have ideas about what – you describe yourself as lonely. Like, what what, yeah. led, what made you feel lonely? I think just uh, – like, first of all, just geography because we lived kind of out in the country. It wasn't walkable. Like, I think this is actually – I have a lot of theories, and one of them is that loneliness is an American problem, partly because mm -hmm. of the way we expect Americans to live and American <clears throat> kids to grow up. You know, like if you live in a suburb where you can't really walk to see anybody that you know and where transit is in any way a pain and or where you can't do that as a kid, um, I think that just being able to, <laughs> of your own volition as a kid, see other kids is important and so that's something that i feel like contributed to that um and then i don't know i think that it was i i feel like the story for me and i imagine this is true for a lot of people is that i had kind of relatively happy-go-lucky social experiences and then a big change occurred which in this case was a move and i wasn't able to find a foothold in a new social group and then because of that that kind of compounded um mm -hmm. and i felt like you know over time developed the idea of myself as someone who just like wasn't really able to do that which i think mm -hmm. was partially supported by uh reality and partially is just the reality created by ideas that you have about yourself because mm -hmm. i think of myself now as a pretty like an introverted person and someone who really 
enjoys and relies on alone time, but who really likes other people. But I feel like I've had to like train myself in adulthood to not fear other human beings in a basic way, the way that some people do with like dogs mm. or crowds. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I totally get that. Was the move that you're talking about when you moved to Hawaii? Mm-hmm. And how old were you when you guys moved? Eight. I have, I've taught, there's a few people I can think of that grew up in Hawaii and they describe it as like, and I know you sort of alluded to this, but like a very, like a very tough place to grow up. I, th- I mean, it, it was for me and I feel like it's hard to know how much to ascribe to which factors because I think in retrospect, also my parents were really struggling more during those years than I really like it really took reaching adulthood and being like oh like this is what it looks like for two adults to be struggling are you talking about like financial Mm. struggling or struggling with each other just with each other emotionally with mental health you know with just kind of being um in the kind of place that you need to having the kind of stability that you need in adult life to you know, to to not be kind of starting over each day, trying to climb uh, various mm-hmm. hills. Um, like we were always doing perfectly well financially. And then I think that also has the effect of making um, other problems feel less visible, which mm-hmm. is um, good in many ways and and bad in many ways. But yeah, I mean, it's I don't know. I don't know when the optimal age is to move to a different place as a kid, but I, it's funny. I, at the time always thought of it as me having a big kind of shock from the degree of change. And it's really only recently that I've all, that I've also thought of having parents who were really like pretty set in their ways. And like, I think if not thrilled with the life that they were, moving away from at least like they really knew how it worked and they'd been doing it for a long time. And then to be in really, you know, like for most of what they knew to be kind of radically different. Mm -hmm. What prompted the move? Uh, A job offer. And just also the idea of like, I think this is part of why for not anymore, but for many years, I was very suspicious of vacation-y places because I was like, (laughs) people, people go to these vacation-y places and they think everything will be fine, but it won't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I grew up in uh, Orange County, California, in Mm. a a place that is not nearly as like vacation-y. You know, but isn't and, that and, where Disneyland is? Is that in Orange County? Yeah, it is. It's in Anaheim. So, I grew up in like Clarinda Del Mar, Newport Beach, which was like half an hour away. Um, Disneyland was, you know, one of the happiest places of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, I mean, so I was born in Oakland, California, and it started getting rough. And so my parents left. And I think that they moved to Orange County, California, to the town we moved to because it was like, it, on the face of it looks so idyllic. Like it's the Mm. streets are man. It's safety was the number one thing. So like it's safe and it's clean and there's nice schools and there's blah, 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 blah. But it's like also, um, very homogenous and very conservative and just 
as an adult now, I know I'm jumping around, but like as an adult, I do understand what appe- mm. what about it appealed to them. Yeah. Um, but as you know, for years and years and years, I was always like, why did you decide to raise us in this godforsaken, awful place? Because I just <laughs> felt like this is we we don't fit into this place at all. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. And there is like, I think maybe kids are more aware of how a location can be aspirational in that way. I have a very, the only time I've been to that area, to me, the context of this is very funny. I was on an oxygen true crime show that will remain nameless. And I was <laughs> staying in a hotel, like right by Disneyland, which it later turned out was because they were doing an interview with, for a different episode with a DA somewhere in Orange County who was like, I refuse to be any interviewed unless you come to me. And they were like, all right. And so they um, <laughs> set up in Anaheim. And I remember just kind of driving around because at the time I would acquaint myself with a place by going to a bunch of nurseries. So kind of driving around town, going to nurseries and thinking like, this is a really funny concept. It feels like the idea of the all American small town mm-hmm. kind of built in Southern California in a way that feels like felt to me as an adult who had no baggage about it, like very sweet and very weird. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, Orange County, when you say nurseries, do you mean plant nurseries? Yes. Yeah. No, I'm not looking that. for babies to, I don't know. I no. <laughs> <laughs> to, to soak to up the vibe. At, of. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So or- Orange County is actually very big uh, mm-hmm. and it's, Orange County itself, I was misspeaking when I said Orange County is homogenous because there's actually mm-hmm. a lot of different parts of Orange County and it kind of mm-hmm. runs the gamut. But not but the parts I, in the TV show, so you can see how people would be confused. Sorry, say it again? Oh, but not the parts in the OC, so you could see how people yes. would be confused. I grew up in like the the uh, the the OC, the TV show, that's like the mm-hmm. area that I grew up. So like the mm-hmm. beach part of it. So yeah. that is all homogenous and like manicured. I mean, that's a little more highfalutin than where I was, but mm-hmm. that's the vibe of of what it was. Um Yeah. But there are parts of Orange County. Well, you know what? This is not a podcast about Orange County, even though it's turning into it. <laughs> so okay. So you're in oh, Hawaii. Did it. <laughs> um how I'm wondering sort of take can take me through the path of like how you got from being that kid in Hawaii to your interest in journalism and mm. media and uh, cultural criticism and all of that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this feels like a weird series of dominoes. And I've been reflecting on this lately. Um, But basically, I went, I finished high school, I really, I loved writing the whole way through. There was a very brief period um, when I was in like, kindergarten or something where I saw something on PBS about people who go down to the bottom of the ocean in submersibles. So aside from wanting to be a writer, there was a brief period when I wanted to go to the bottom of the ocean in submersibles um, and see all the weird stuff that lives down there. And that was my only other aspiration. But I ditched that pretty quickly and just really loved writing and did it as much as I could. And I, one of the main outlets that I had growing up um, especially as a teen was fan fiction. I wrote so much fan fiction on fanfiction.net. I don't even know if that website still exists. For a while, the big fan fiction website was Wattpad. And now I feel like it's archive of our own, but maybe there's some other thing where it is now. But in 2003, it was fanfiction.net. 
I mean, what what kind of fan fiction? That so many questions. Yeah. Um, I mean, a, a few different kinds of fan fiction, but I really flourished writing Newsies fan fiction. I did oh my that God, for it's years. <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a good community. It was, and at, it's funny to me that at the time I was this teenager who was very motivated to write. If you had, you know, given me an assignment to do some kind of creative writing that wasn't an essay or a book report, like I would have just torn it up. Um, but there just wasn't a lot of outlet for that. I think writing is something that's so utilitarian in the way teaching works that maybe it doesn't get seen necessarily as a discrete activity when teenagers mm-hmm. do it. At least I felt like that at the time. And so, yeah, so much Newsies fan fiction. It's, <laughs> the, and it was like, you know, and it was stuff like, interestingly, we wrote about practically everything except the strike because i guess the movie covered that and we were like okay that's enough it's enough union stuff we're we don't (laughs) know about how unions work so what if the newsies came to a contemporary high school in arizona what would they all be like (laughs) who would be a skater you know you could think about that for a whole day i love it you know i don't know if you ever watched the show facts of life but i never wrote this was like my favorite show and i never wrote facts Mm -hmm. of life fan fiction or anything like that but pastime of mine often was like thinking about you know the four main girls and then thinking like what really is the relationship between Blair and Tootie and in my head Mm -hmm. I would just like do it almost like a chemistry test like I would just think of like the two of them are together how did they get along the two of them and I would just pair up the different ones like playing with dolls but in my head and it's the facts of life girls okay so you're doing Newsies fan fiction and then I assume you go to college at some point. And where did you go? I go to college at some point. I went to Bennington for a while, which was really fun. And then I lacked the motivation to really know what I was doing there anymore is how I reckon is how I remember it. Mm -hmm. Um, I did theater there. I have not done theater since I always felt like there's like this secret little pilot light of theater somewhere inside of me. And like, who knows when it will you know, blow up the house down (laughs) (laughs) when it will explode. (laughs) It could happen at any time. Um, Everyone is at risk. And, (laughs) and then I went to Portland state. I went back to Portland, my hometown um, and kind of stuck close to home. I think I felt like I had been burned by my initial experience of trying to go far away and have the felicity at college experience Mm. i was like that was too much new stuff i'm gonna do medium new stuff (laughs) um which unfortunately is my response to to new stuff i'm not i don't think that's ideal um but that's how i manage change and so i graduated college in 2010 Which was like, I remember as being like pretty in the thick of the Great Recession. It was Mm -hmm. when we were still like, this is a relatively new phenomenon. Maybe it won't last forever. Like that was cute. You know, not that it lasted forever, but it did define uh, a generation. And so obviously I decided to stay in school and got an MFA. In? In fiction. And then in the process of doing an MFA in fiction... I started writing nonfiction for the first time, kind of because that was what I was able to publish. I could write little kind of short nonfiction pieces, mm-hmm. and that was what I was figuring out how to publish online. I was also publishing poetry at the time, 
Like I honestly, when I was 22, all I wanted was to have bylines. I was just like, I was dying of starvation. And the only thing that could keep me alive was bylines. <laughs> and, and so I uh, started writing kind of nonfiction little humor pieces. This was the heyday of the all in the hairpin. And I think because fiction was so stressful in enterprise, if I focused on it full time, nonfiction became enticing because of that. And I started mm-hmm. really enjoying. And then, of course, you know, I had always written essays. I did a master's in literature at the same time um where did you get your advanced degrees i was at psu for years Mm. and years i was i was there for my for college and my other degrees and then um i taught there for a couple years after that i felt like it was like one of those relationships where like you stay too long and then you finally have to like leave yourself because they're not gonna ask you to leave (laughs) um (laughs) right Um, so very comfortable yeah, I really grew up there. Um, and and so doing a master's degree, like you do, you write and read a lot of academic writing. And I think what I liked about that was that it kind of, in a sort of unintentional way, I think, put me through schooling for trying to write essays, mm-hmm. which I think is really what I do in nonfiction more than anything when I do it. Um, because, you know, I was I was doing facts and also this concept of you know what does it mean to try and have this relationship with this concept of a person who we only have through their writings like what are we doing here the Mm -hmm. kind of metatextual stuff of not just learning history but talking about the pursuit of trying to call something history at all Um, and then doing that at the same time as short fiction which is like really so focused on the sentence um like normally just like hardly anything happens in short stories some short stories are action-packed but like not that many that i read so they're really relying on (laughs) the sentence to to get you through the whole thing so i feel like doing those things at once um was kind of this like lego degree in the essay Mm -hmm. so and and were you always drawn to pop culture Yeah, I really was. I think it's I think a lot about how I grew up watching like VH1 countdowns and biography and the kind of the cable TV channels that had started to appear in the late 90s, which I feel like was the point when TV started to be about itself in a really robust way. Does that make sense? I think I understand what you mean. Um, But say more, say more about that. I feel like there was just like a lot of media on media at that like time. Like clip shows. Then, yeah, like clip shows and countdowns and like mm-hmm. E! True Hollywood Story, which like obviously I watched a ton of. Right. Um, like re- re- a lot of revisiting of things. Yes. Like a lot of cataloging, right, like there's enough indexing. TV that's existed yes. that where TV is now going to be about TV. Um, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> and, yeah. And that that was such a, a flourishing thing. And I don't know, I was just thinking today, um, for some reason, I was thinking about how, oh, I know why. It was because I was driving and I looked over and I kind of glimpsed something that my brain after the fact was like, maybe that was a person. And then I was like, I don't think that might not have been a person because sometimes I'll just see like a trash can out of the corner of my eye for a split second. 
and my brain backfills it as a person. Then I look mm-hmm. over and it's a trash can. And I was like, I bet that <laughs> wasn't a person. I bet that was one of those trash can people. And then I was like, it's too bad I can't roll it back. Like, what if I could just roll the tape back and see this, what was actually there? <laughs> this is like, so I mentioned to you the segment that I do, Just Me or Everyone. This is mm-hmm. one of my Just Me or Everyone's. If oh. I'm behind, I've definitely been in a car and wanted to rewind. Because it's like I'm behind right. a glass. It feels like I'm behind a screen and it's made me right. realize how how used to having the ability to rewatch something I am. Mm-hmm. Similarly, I think of that. this is actually not similarly, but this something made me think of it. Oftentimes, mm. if I'm in like a movie theater, which I'm never in anymore, but if I'm in a seat, I'll like reach for my seatbelt. I guess it's tangentially related because it's like... Huh the car that the the relationship between the car and the movie theater experience totally anyway though yes i totally have that thing and then i and then i think what's happening to the way i'm uh, mediating reality yeah and i i mean what that made me think of in the moment was how cuz something i think i've thought about a lot with regards to the satanic panic is that we have the whole phenomenon is bolstered partly by the fact that there's you know these beliefs in psychology at the time that um, repressed memories are these memories that specifically that our brains are like, you can't deal with this thing that's happening to you, you're too young. So we're going to put this in the deep freeze and take it out and it'll be in mint condition, because it'll have never been touched. (laughs) And right. And unfortunately, memory doesn't appear to work that way. Um, It seems like, you know, if you don't think about something, or don't think about something with some effort, whether it's conscious or not for many years, then like it doesn't stay in great condition because Mm -hmm. you haven't looked at it in a really long time. It's actually, it's harder to access. You can't run the tape back. Like you should be able to, because every like justice would be so much more in reach if you could, but you can't. And so there's so much rhetoric in these repressed memory texts that are um, supporting the idea that memory is easier to obtain a factual copy of, many, many years after the fact are there's often this metaphor that they return to of like your memory is like a videotape and like mm. VCRs are kind of new technology at the time. And I imagine people are, I don't know, it's just that there's something about being able to see things over and over that maybe makes us able to believe that we might function like a videotape. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't, it really sucks. I have often wondered, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but let's say you're in a room and there is a conversation happening within your earshot, but you're not paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. Is it still being recorded in your memory? Like if we could somehow access your memory of being Hmm. in that room, would it be there? Or is it like, if you're not paying attention to it, you're not recording it? I have no idea. I mean, I, I, my guess is that it would depend because I think that we're usually taking in more information than we necessarily realize. Right. And we could even be recording stuff and not noticing that we're recording it to memory. Um, see, and there I'm using a VCR metaphor. Um, <laughs> although I guess it was existed before VCRs existed. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, so I think it would depend on whether you had any consciousness of it at all. Like, mm-hmm. I think if you truly, like, never engaged with that or noticed it, then, like, it's probably in- inaccessible. And I think that, like, I mean, a lot of what even is said directly to us, we can't get back to. 
after yeah. not that long. Like, I think one of the weird things about adulthood is that kids have amazing memories because they depend on them to survive. Um, and cause they're new, presumably. And I think that we, like, as we get older, we continue to want to believe that our memories are capable of the feats they were when we were younger. Um, but they're just not, they're not that good. No. And that is a real bummer because I'm someone who I always, I, I've always had a really good memory. So yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I feel like within the last 10 years is when I started thinking like, oh, my memory is much more fallible than I want to think of it as. And it feels yeah. like the way I think of it is like a big bookshelf. And like I go to pull out the book and instead like I accidentally pull out three of the wrong books or something, you know, like I'll just say a name and it's the it's right. not it's the wrong name. Um, and then also, and I imagine you've had this experience as someone who's had a podcast for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was recently telling a story about, uh, a conversation that I'd had with, I'd had with a podcast guest and my, I told the story about it being an off mic exchange. Um, and that like a lot of people heard though. And then a listener wrote in, she's like, actually that happened on air and you, ha <laughs> you had like a really funny response. And I was like, oh the, oh, the reality of it was so much better than how I just retold it, but it was totally different. So that makes yeah. me an unreliable narrator of my own life. So there yeah. you go. And I think that that's, I mean, there's, um, there's an episode of the podcast heavyweight that I think is amazing where they investigate whether Rob Cordry actually broke his arm as a child because he broke his arm, but no one in his family remembers him having a broken arm. <laughs> oh my and, God. Like, I won't tell you how it ends, but like that, like that's, that's incredible. And like, that's the kind of thing that happens. And yet also, and you know, to make it more paradoxical, like we are capable of remembering things incredibly well with incredible <laughs> detail and it's just that we're also capable of not remembering what happened on our own show. I mean, I have the experience on Twitter fairly often if somebody will be like, Sarah said, you know, this on an episode of You're Wrong About. And then there will be a quote and I'll be like, wow, that's pretty smart. I don't remember saying that. <laughs> I don't know when I said it. I don't know what it was about. But like, good yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like your the idea you have of yourself is actually it's worse than the the you that other people are remembering for you. Um, yeah. Let's take a quick break, <laughs> and then I want to find out how you started. You're wrong about. I want to tell you guys about HelloFresh. They are a meal kit delivery service, so you get farm fresh pre proportioned, pre portioned. I put an extra pra. It's just pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. So uh, Elliot, my son, wants to be a baker when he grows up, and he's decided he's going to be a baker when he grows up. And uh, my little one, littlest one, Owen, is going to be a chef. And Elliot told me today they're going to work in a restaurant together, and it's going to be called are you ready for this incredible name? 
bakers and chefs. But anyway, uh, Elliot is all about cooking and specifically baking. That's where he's, uh, you know, he's specialized in baking, but he is about, he wants to help out in the kitchen and cook a ton, uh, whenever I'm doing anything in there. And we had a HelloFresh shipment recently and we received the ingredients to make shepherd's pie and he helped me. And it was such a fun experience to have together. And it was, you know, it, it's real cooking. It's, it's not like you're just, I don't know. I don't know why I'm, I feel like it's clear. What I was going to say is it's not like, you know, you're putting them in the microwave. Like it's, it's all the steps involved in cooking, but <clears throat> so much of the prep work and the guesswork and all that is taken out of it. So it's really like you're your own, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of which cooking person to mention. Emerald, you're your own Emerald. You're your own Rachel Ray, you know. Um, and it was so delicious. And then I think tonight we're going to make hibachi sweet soy steak and shrimp. So the, and by the way, you can like customize what kind of, uh, recipes you want. So HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, including veggie, calorie smart, family friendly, uh, et cetera. And the new year is a great time to focus on what's most important to you, whether it's saving money by ordering less takeout, learning to cook or prioritizing your wellness. HelloFresh is here to help with endless options to make cooking at home simple and enjoyable. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Allison16 and use code Allison16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash Allison16 and use code Allison16 for 16 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I also want to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You've heard me talk about therapy and how much I feel that therapy has helped me. Oh, I can't imagine where I'd be without therapy. Actually, I know where I'd be without therapy. I'd probably pretty much be the person that I was 20 years ago. And no one wants that. This is an uncomfortable pause. I'm just, it's just dawning on me how much therapy has, has, it both helps me to feel better and it's just helped me to grow in all sorts of areas of my life. That's really a story for another day. I want to talk about better help. Look, there's stigmas around therapy. People think that you should wait until things are unbearable to go to therapy. Uh, but that's not true. Therapy is a tool to utilize before things get worse and it can help you avoid those lows. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. You don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash best friend. So 10% off your first month. Um, that's BetterHelp. B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash best friend. Okay, we're back. So tell me, how did your wrong about start? So this is a nice story. I had, uh, to tell the full story, I published an article about Tanya Harding in 2014, January 2014, which helps us with our domino journey from my childhood to now where I was in grad school, I was publishing short things. That Tanya Harding piece is the first significant size piece of nonfiction that I ever published um, and kind of set the tone for the, the work that I was publishing in the years after that. And unbeknownst to me at the time, it was read by 
a guy named Michael Hobbs who reconnected with me. Gosh, actually only two years later, it feels like many, many years passed between Mm -hmm. uh, me publishing that article and us first being in touch, but it was like two and a half years. Um, And initially just, we got in touch and we're talking as fellow journalists. I think he was recommending that I pitch something to the Huffington Post where he was working at the time. And I was, and I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. I would really like to just like have a reason to continue emailing with this person, um, but just nothing ever quite fit. And so he came to me in, I think, January or February of 2018 with this idea of doing a podcast called, um, I think the initial title ideas were Second Draft or I Misremember the 90s about <laughs> pop culture stories that we had gotten wrong in the 90s. And I was like, I love this idea. But I would really want to do an episode on Leopold and Loeb. So can we not have the 90s baked into the concept? Because I want to do at least one episode on the 1920s. And then, of course, like four years later, I've never done a Leopold and Loeb episode. (laughs) Yeah. And so we uh, started, you know, we made a couple demo episodes um, and kept going and then initially had a plan to uh, pitch it to the Huffington Post as something that they would pick up. They declined and so uh, we started putting it out independently and just kept going with it because it was fun, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your Tanya Harding story, what was the what was the, the thesis, if you will, of that? I mean, the through line of that, there's 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 first of all, the actual argument of like, what is the actual evidence that Tanya Harding not even masterminded the assault on Nancy Kerrigan, but had anything to do with it and laying out what, you know, was known to science at that time. And then B, I think the bigger mission and what, you know, remains important to me is something that I attempted. And according to some readers who I've heard back from, I was successful at was just being like, who is this person? What is the story? What was her life prior to this moment when she was thrust into the public eye how had the institution of skating treated her what is skating how does it treat women historically Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a figure skater um what kind of control does its governing body or its governing bodies have over you and your body potentially just kind of getting deep into it and also uh you know trying to tell the whole story and the life story of both Tiny Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. So that if you get to the end, you can think potentially, you know, I don't know what I think about guilt or innocence in this case, but this was definitely a story where the media uh, sold the public a story where someone young and uh, victimized and suffering was seen as a brilliant mastermind uh Mm -hmm. who deserved nothing but scorn and fury and we were all complacent in that moment and why and what for um did you see i tanya i did yeah what'd you think of it i really like it i mean i've talked and there's a tiny harding episode of you're wrong about where i talk about things that i personally uh would have handled differently like i think specifically it it makes the question of abuse feel a little bit too comfortable for me because the things that she alleges that her husband did to her even if you do this kind of he said she said version which this movie does um 
you know, you would get into a more uncomfortable place that I think like I, I would have wanted the movie to be 20 to 30% more uncomfortable, but like, you know, I also recognize that there's only a certain level of discomfort that you can reach and Mm -hmm. meet certain distribution goals. That's my, what I imagine is the situation there. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they wanted to not make an uncomfortable movie. Like I guess people, not everyone sets out to be uncomfortable. It's weird of them, but yeah, fine. Wait, what is the, (laughs) what it, what is the discomfort? What's the discomfort more specifically that you feel like they didn't include? I mean, I think that it always stays in kind of a funny place where she retains agency. She's able to kind of tell people off. We don't, you know, I don't think that we need to like see a ton of abuse in movies to believe that someone is alleging it. But I think that the movie doesn't really depict the kind of control and the kind mm-hmm. of fear of Jeff that um, she says that she lived in, which I see no reason to disbelieve. Right. Um, and just, you know, that like this to me, this is kind of a nerdy thing to take issue with. But I do think that it relates to kind of something deeper, which is that there's a scene in the movie where the judges have uh, scored her low based on, I think, her costume. And she kind of yells at them and says, suck my dick, um, <laughs> oh, yes. which is like really fun to watch. Like, that's very cathartic. I love it. I love watching Margot Robbie yell, suck my dick at someone like on a purely scene level, like A plus from me. But also I feel like to me, one of the things that feels so relevant about what figure skating was is that like the rules of performance were so suffocating that I think like no one would have ever considered speaking to a judge from the ice. I've never heard of a skater doing that. It seems like the kind of thing that like in a sport so obsessed with etiquette would potentially be so ruinous to you that I can't imagine someone even considering Mm -hmm. doing that, which again is like, it's less fun to watch. (laughs) I know what you mean though. Yeah, I know what you mean. When 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 you are mired, and I don't mean that when you're up on all the details, something like that feels like a big departure. Yeah, and just you know, I think that I have my personal ideas about what made the situation seem so awful to me, and so I'm highly invested in in a work depicting that. But I also I feel like that movie evangelized for you know, for someone who I care about a lot and whose legacy I care about a lot. And I feel like, I feel like I've frequently seen people watching I, Tanya on airplanes. (laughs) That makes me really happy. Have you ever talked to her? The actual Tanya? I never have. Someday I wish to, but yeah, it's my, my attempts have been foiled so far. And also I don't want to like try so hard that it becomes adversarial. That's like against the spirit of the thing. Mm hmm. So You're Wrong About is very popular um, and you guys do it independently. How did you how how did you start getting the word out about it? How did people start discovering it? I I mean, I, the, I don't know the, the mechanics of it. I feel like when Mike and I got started, we were both spending roughly 23 hours a day on Twitter. And I'm sure that helped to some extent. <laughs> like, I feel like Twitter is sort of. Uh, like a necessary evil if you're working in media for that reason, unfortunately. Um, And I think we definitely had early listeners who were 
also, you know, had some kind of platform on Twitter and could share it that way. Like, that's my best understanding of how it got started. And I think the ball started rolling relatively slowly. Um, and I think it was probably kind of a cult. Well, like getting known for the first few months, then maybe kind of a cult hit um, mm-hmm. for the first year and a half of its existence. And then I think like what <laughs> the thing I feel most weird about and I guess good about in the end is that I feel like it really became a popular show after we started having a pandemic and Mike and I Mm. responded at the time by being like all right work is the only thing that feels normal anymore let's make a million of these Mm -hmm. did you guys up the frequency in the pandemic we did yeah we were doing two episodes a week I think for a big chunk there which is you know was not a sustainable pace, but it, I think there was a period where it was just like the only, to me, at least the only thing that felt good. Mm-hmm. Um, so at some point last late last year, mm-hmm. Michael decided he was leaving. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, but, but why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny. We initially had this conversation where we were both like, I think we, push this too hard during the pandemic Mm. and we both feel burned out on it and then I sat back and thought about it for a while and I was like you know all the goals that I have for what I want to do next because I still want to do podcasts I want to talk to people I want to learn things I want to have people explain that to me like it, it feels like it makes sense to just keep doing the show and let it change to meet those needs that I have that I would be otherwise just starting over with a new show Mm -hmm. in order to do um and so that's you know how i reached what i'm doing now which is still being in the explainer seat but not half the time which was um roughly the breakdown or at least the concept of mike and sarah's you're wrong about and now to be on the receiving end of information more often but i think it was just like the show had to be reborn in some way because i think we had both i think something dangerous happens when you feel comfortable that you kind of know how to do something without thinking too hard about it you know at that point something maybe has to change in order to keep it interesting for yourself yeah, I, mean. I think yeah for yourself and like i assume for the listener as well i think things fall into a rut mm-hmm. relatively easily um i don't know but then i mean really i guess everything has to do on whether you can feel someone's heart being in it And I think, Mm. like, my feeling, because, like, you know, I grew up watching sitcoms. We've already established this. I feel like you can hear in long-running podcasts the same thing that happens in sitcoms where, like, you can hear people's hearts stop being in it. And it's such Mm. a bummer. And you feel like you were hearing that with your co-host, potentially. I think that we were both hearing that in ourselves. And Mm. we kind of you know both became like took a running jump at it and and admitted that to each other and then for me the solution was I mean I think that uh you know he was already kind of had already been working on maintenance phase for some time and that's where his energy is going now and I think that I'm you know kind of doing something similar with this which is to continue doing not the same thing but something where there's just kind of there's a similar 
um, or a built off of the original, but a new set of challenges ahead. And there's, you know, different things that I want to do with subject matter, because now that it's more a guest oriented format, there's just that kind that opens up more to talk about for one thing, my brain Mm -hmm. can only understand so much from an explainer perspective. Right. Do you feel there's more responsibility on your shoulders now? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Because being part of a duo, um, like, (laughs) I've always really enjoyed, I don't think Mike ever really embraced this because he doesn't really have a clear mental image of who these people are, I assume. But I always enjoyed thinking of us as something like Martin and Lewis, um, (laughs) where you just, like, among other things, you just become like a single substance, you Mm -hmm. know? (laughs) And so to be my own substance is like, yeah, there's definitely, there is kind of some magical thinking to that, that duo feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, you know, I've been podcasting for a long time and I, and, and, and personnel changes freak audiences out. Yeah. Uh, And I get it too. I totally get like, I am used to this relationship and this is, and I don't want to go through growing pains. Um, Right. And I have been, you know, I've been on all sides of it. I've been freaked out, like what happens now? And then I, and this is really like me revealing too much of my own thought process, but, um, but maybe I can share something with you, which mm-hmm. you probably don't even need to hear this. But at the same time, I look at it myself like, well, you know what? This whole situation is forcing me personally to become a stronger podcaster on my own to, right. you know, and the people who, are here are uh, are here because they like what I am offering, uh, and I'm and I'm and I'm more fully like stepping into that that role of like just me. Not that I'm, you know what I'm saying. I feel like I've mm-hmm. said too much. <laughs> <laughs> Can't give all the secrets away, but yeah, totally. And I feel like I have so many experiences where I'm like, oh god damn it, I'm growing and learning. This is terrible. <laughs> Again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know what you mean. Um, Gosh, there's so much stuff. Okay, I'm just going to list the things that I want to get to. So I'm on Patreon. We have some questions from Patreon listeners. Mm -hmm. I know you have a lot of thoughts about uh, and just like that, which I love to hear because (laughs) I also have thoughts about that. Um, And then we have just mirror everyone. We have, hey, go fuck yourself. Um, Okay. Yeah. What? How are you feeling about this Sex in the City reboot? Oh, my God. I have so many feelings. I feel like it's like, A, it's so funny to me that all anyone does all year long is recommend obviously amazing shows that I'm sure I would like. Like, first, everyone was talking about Succession. And now, like, some of my closest friends are watching Succession and bothering me about Succession. And the more people tell me how great Succession is, the more I feel the need to avoid watching Succession. I don't know why. I don't know. Um and with with so much other stuff too. And then the Sex and the City reboot comes out. And obviously, if you have any history with something, it's easier to be invested. And I have been watching Sex and the City since it was on, I think, UPN on late night <laughs> reruns in 2004. Um, and it's like I've watched most of the episodes multiple times. I think it's terrible. It's all I can talk about. <laughs> like I'm so invested in this terrible, wonderful show. Um, yeah. Uh, it. You know, I felt like the most recent one 
what got the closest to like the feeling of the old show, I think because mm-hmm. of like the inane puns, they've gotten back into yes. the puns and the wordplay and stuff, which w- that really was the fifth girl. Step out of the way, <laughs> New York. It was the wordplay. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. I too, I feel like it's just a real mess. And yet I do like to watch it. Yeah. I was thinking, I was actually watching part of an episode right before we started uh, this conversation. Uh, And I was thinking, like, it's kind of cool and sad and cool to think that in today's TV landscape, we might just keep checking in on our favorite characters across formats for decades. (laughs) Never never have to say goodbye. (laughs) Right. We never have to say goodbye. We just keep having kind of diminished returns until it's truly impossible to do another project. But like, yeah, I think the funniest thing, and then this did send me down a rabbit hole of watching the original show and kind of watching it from the beginning, watching the format change. And it's so funny to me to think about how much it's changed from what it originally was, which was like this episodic show where every episode had a sexual thesis. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, well, I first th- that first season to me, like it was really not very compelling. Yeah, um, and and it's then when awkward. they changed, right? But see, okay, so I feel like we should just we're gonna. I'm, am I spoiling? I don't think this Let's is just even a spoiler. Have a really, spoilathon. Yeah. Um. Yeah, this is not really a spoiler. But the idea that Carrie isn't sexually explicit enough in her discussion on the podcast and her Mm -hmm. podcast boss is telling her she has to step her pussy up. Remember how many times she said that in that first episode? Didn't like that. Yeah. It's, but it's hard to believe that she would be so prudish, right? Cause she never was. And here's like another central paradox of the show, which I find fascinating, which is that, okay, first season didn't really land. They changed it a lot. They got rid of Skipper they were like, let's move away from this like man on the street. What is yeah. the sex? What is the city approach? <laughs> um, and make it really like a soap opera about these four women and their fun, like sex adventures and increasingly their relationships with guys like Steve. And, um, <laughs> oh my God, I completely, oh yeah. And so what's funny is that it starts off making sense that Carrie's a columnist because she's like going to bars and she's asking people questions and interviewing Mm -hmm. like the guy who has sex with models. And then from like the third season on, I would say it just becomes this weird, unacknowledged enigma where it's like, are Carrie's columns literally just her describing her friends' sex lives? And if so, how is this affecting them? And it's never addressed. (laughs) Yeah. It's so confusing. Is this in the column? Is Miranda and Steve's relationship something that New Yorkers are reading about for four years? That is that's such a good point. You're right. I don't know. <laughs> Carrie's the bad art friend. Um <laughs> That's the only conclusion we can emerge with. Yeah. Uh well, oh yeah. So I went to a, a book signing of Candace Bushnell's many years ago. And in the book, she wrote, her inscription was, Dear Allison, watch out for the modelizers. Candace Bushnell. <laughs> I bring it up because you said that guy who only slept with models. Right. And he, that was the name, the modelizers. Episode so. two, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, okay. How do you feel about how awkward all these white women are in trying to like be quote unquote woke? Because even though it is so cringeworthy to watch, I think there's a part of me that likes this side of it because I think, and I have not, I'm just thinking on the fly here. So I'm at risk of uh, saying something that I wish I hadn't that I was putting my foot in my mouth, but let me see if I can articulate this. There's this idea of like the way to be an enlightened ally is just follow these four steps and just mm-hmm. act this way and just be this way and stuff. And I feel like actually oftentimes that leads to awkwardness and it's really mm-hmm. like the way to be a like a a good decent enlightened person is to it's situational and it's to listen to other people and it's not just to have these rules like i always act this way or i always say this thing mm. um i am uh part of this facebook moms group that on my podcast upwardly weekly my co-host refers to as the sanctimonious moms of la i just like i look at it like a car crash like these it, it they are the most it is the most ridiculous group that is trying so hard to be so enlightened that mostly it's just like a whole bunch of people correcting each other all the time mm-hmm. uh but i guess what what am i trying to say cuz i'm all over the place what i'm trying to say is yeah it's sort of interesting even though it's cringeworthy it's interesting to to watch these women be so uh, just awkward and and shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah, and it's like I, I mean, I think something that makes it funny to compare to the original show is that, like, what like one of the aspects of performative allyship that I think feels specifically gross when you see it today or when you think you see it is when you feel like, well, you're just doing this because it's what you have to do now. Like this is in fashion now. Mm-hmm. Um. And I feel like the original Sex in the City was always about kind of what's in fashion, this question of like, what's the new restaurant that everyone's going to? Right. What's the new club? Everyone in New York wants to be in denial. Um, and just and doing stuff because, you know, I, I think, well, to, to zoom out, like, to another big thought I've been having and try and connect all of this. I was talking to a friend the other day about growing up with the original sex in the city because i've been reflecting on this a lot lately and why i'm so invested in this weird reboot and one of the things that occurred to me that has never occurred to me before because it's so not part of the picture is that like this takes place in an entirely safe new york city like Mm -hmm. especially early on charlotte has all these boyfriends who are defined by wanting to do a sex thing that she doesn't want to do and she's always like just kind of shakes her her little head and they're like all right you know, and everyone's just kind of doing whatever they want sexually and never like never is there the concept that any of the men that they're having sex with any of the situations they're in could become dangerous or traumatic mm-hmm. or like difficult more than just being like annoying. Right. Like, oh, no, I thought I could have sex with this really old guy, but then I saw his butt. And I <laughs> ran away <laughs> and I kept the jewelry. The end. Um like everything is a caper and Mm -hmm. i think there's something that i find so lovely and also divorced from reality (laughs) about that like not reality as we always live it but 
the reality of our lives as defined by anxiety um, yeah. and anxiety that is founded on something very real. Yes. Do you find it believable that they would be so clumsy and out of touch? Yeah. To get back to your actual question. I mean, yeah, I do. And I also, I guess I feel like it's interesting to me that this is so much the focus. And I feel like maybe their clumsiness is a way and attempt to even the balance sheet because there's also this really odd wish fulfillment for mm. the characters where like everyone gets her own woman of color to befriend. <laughs> like that feels really weird. Right. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yes. Cause Charlotte right. gets the other mom at her children's school. Yes. Uh, Miranda gets-, gets her realtor, Seema. Yes. Miranda gets her professor. Naya. Naya Wallace. Don't you know that's Naya Wallace? Let her in. Right. She doesn't have her ID. Yeah. Oh, wow. I hadn't hadn't thought about how they each get their own friend. Right. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, I know that I'm saying that in a way that makes it sound as gross as possible, but like they do. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking, I wasn't thinking of Carrie and Seema. I was thinking of Carrie and, um, Mario Cantone as like the new duo, but you're right. Well, I also love how Mario Cantone shows up like sitting with them because it keeps feeling like I want there to be some like an announcement before the show starts of like, ladies and gentlemen, the role of Samantha Jones is being played (laughs) by Mario Cantone. Right. (laughs) Totally. Um, Yeah. I mean, I feel like they have really taken the, you know, it'd be like, if we were to revisit friends and it's like now they're constantly talking about how they afford their apartment and also they have right. a, have new diverse friends too. Like I feel like they internalized all the, the, the knocks against the original version. And so they're going to sort of incorporate those notes, but in like a winking way. So, yeah, it's like, I'm just glad that anything sex in the city is happening. Like I was in the theater. I saw to see sex in the city too twice i did not think it was good i was still there is that the one where they go to abu dhabi (laughs) abu dhabi okay yes i saw that one in the theater as well (sighs) yeah yeah i almost feel like like the thing of everyone having a counterpart i feel like the show is saying like we shouldn't even be making this show we should be making a show about four completely different people and it's like well yeah, I don't disagree. Like, you could do both, you know? Yes, you're right. It's like, yeah, it's got such I'm sorry energy to it. Yeah, they should do, um, like, Sex in the City, comma, T-O-O, Gen Z. That's what I want. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, go on. Oh, didn't they do a prequel, though? Oh, they did. Well, oh, yeah, they did. But here's the thing. I think the casting of Carrie Bradshaw was, and I realize this is an intense thing to say, but I mean it. It was anti-Semitic casting. Thank you. <laughs> they, oh, like, if you look at a picture of teen Sarah Jessica Parker, she just, she looks like Sarah Jessica Parker, you mm-hmm. know? Um, right. And they, yeah, they chose like a very Serena Vanderwoodson. Yes. Actress. Exactly. Yeah. We need, we need like quirky little square pegs carry running around downtown. Yeah. You're right. Now I'm angry about that. Although I never, I never saw i never watched it i just remember seeing trailers for the uh 
the prequel. Um, okay, let's take some questions that people sent in on Patreon. I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Episodes of my bonus podcast, The Friend Zone. There's a level where you can text me and I'll text you back. You can watch videos of the Thursday show. This video will be on YouTube, youtube.com slash Allison Rosen. But you get Thursday show videos, Zoom parties, so much stuff. If you sign up for an annual subscription, you get two months free. So 12 months for the price of 10. Okay. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Lynn Moynihan says, what are some episode topics you've really wanted to cover but haven't yet or can't? Hmm. Um, I've always wanted to do a Jack the Ripper episode and have felt intimidated by just the level of research I feel like it would require to, to make that worth it. Um, I feel like all my answers are going to fall along those lines pretty much. Ditto for Titanic. I was just making a list today and thinking of maybe doing that this April. Mm -hmm. Um, so some like farther back in history stuff, also Leopold and Loeb. I feel like something that happened in the eighties or nineties, I have kind of an actual research base about, and I can kind of of build off of that. And then if I'm going to a part of history that feels more distant where I have to get kind of, you know, just oriented in the time period before I can talk about something happening in it, that feels like, a bigger, uh, right. A much bigger undertaking, but I'm excited to try to do some of the bigger things. Can you do all of it from your home computer? Like, or is there, is there microfiche involved sometimes? (laughs) (laughs) Is microfiche Um, even a thing anymore? Oh, sure. Yeah. I have never used it, but I've always wanted to. It's like a horror (laughs) movie thing to do. You're like, right. Everything I found on this microfiche about the haunted house where I live. Um, (laughs) Well, I remember when I was researching the Tammy Faye Baker and Jessica Hahn episode, there was this Jessica Hahn interview in Playboy that I wanted to read. And Playboy didn't have it accessible online. There's like less digitization of Playboy than of other magazines, shockingly. Um, (laughs) And so I was living in Las Vegas at the time and I did not have time to like order a copy on eBay and get it in like 10 days. I needed it like that week. And so I was like, all right, I am going to a bunch of antique stores and flea markets and I will find this episode of Playboy. And I did. And I love when that happens. (laughs) So would you just go in and be like, hi, I'd like all your old Playboys, please. Well, I remember I found it in this antiques mall where it was like, you know, just a bunch of different um, little areas where people were selling their wares. And so I just Mm. went um, just went through them. And stopped at the places that had periodicals because Playboys, you know, have a pretty decent resale value if you have one in good quality. So they turn up. I I had been antiquing enough that I was like, that Playboy is out there. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Have you ever done anything on, and I bet people... It's like a doctor being at a party and someone's like, could you look at my mole? I bet people all the time are like, have you ever done anything on? But... Uh, just two things that popped up in my head as like these mm-hmm. things that I'm still like, what the hell was going on there? Yeah. Go ask Alice Ooh. and uh, flowers, flowers in the attic. Oh, wow. Have you touched okay. on those at all in episodes? That's such a great. Yes. Um, that's much better than the mole question because I don't have to look <laughs> at a mole. Um, 
So I like I almost did a Go Ask Alice episode last year, and I don't know why I didn't. I think I got or no, I was doing I wanted to do like a fake memoir spectacular one. And then I oh, yeah. recorded part of it and wasn't happy with it and then didn't go back to it. But I think a Go Ask Alice episode by itself would be great because I have a copy of that mm-hmm. that I remember reading for the time. And it was like the writing in that book is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I need to reread it because I it was like passed around like contraband when I was like 12 yeah. or something. And I remember then writing in my own journal and being like, I am writing like her 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 manner of speaking has like bled into me. And now I'm hmm. like, I don't even want to be sounding like her. But I, I remember writing in my diary like I feel like I sound like the, you know, go ask Alice because I yeah. just read it. But I don't I, you know. Like later, I read sort of a synopsis and I was like, I need to reread this because I think I missed a lot of what was going on. You got to reread it. Yeah. I had read part of it in fifth grade and I didn't finish it because I had a short attention span and I liked dragons. But I (laughs) I think I skipped to the end and read what happened and then threw it aside for the dragons. But I remember what seemed so freaky to me about it. A, I totally believed it was real. Yeah. And I was shocked when I found out later on that it was written, I think, by a concerned Mormon woman who wrote a bunch of fake teen diaries um, to show that, you know, doing a drug (laughs) will destroy (laughs) your life forever. But I remember the way that she died in the story. It was like it was this real journal by this real girl. And she went down this horrible, dark path from doing drugs. She like smoked some. No, I think actually she started by doing LSD and then she Mm -hmm. smoked weed. And then she like ran away and she was living on the streets and things were really rough. And then she came back home and she was, you know, getting used to like so much stuff happened in this book. Um, she was reacclimating to living with her family. It was this really rough road. She was really recovering. And then she went to a party and someone slipped her a drug and she died. And it was like this world of like, not only will you die if you do drugs, but like drugs are going to come kill you. Right. They'll come find you. <laughs> yes. Well, I remember reading and I think it was like the sixth Sweet Valley High book. Mm. Um, did you read Sweet Valley High? I never read those. Okay, I this definitely was, I, had friends who did. Yeah. In the sixth one, Regina Morrow does cocaine once and dies. <gasps> and I was oh, so sure that's how it goes down. Like that really, that affected me way more than dare um and then yeah did was flowers in the attic and i keep wanting to say flowers for algernon but flowers in the attic part of your childhood two of the big flowers bestsellers so i never read it when i was growing up i remember knowing that it was like the scandalous book that people are like oh man flowers in the attic and i finally read it um like just a few years ago because i knew that it was something that um, a subject that i was researching had read And I was like, what is this book about? Like, what kind of a portrait do you get of a person by, like, reading a book that they liked if it was Flowers in the Attic? (laughs) And so I read it. And, yeah, um, I don't know what, like, I'm curious what you think would be a good angle for that. Because I would love to talk about it because it's just, it does feel like a book that is kind of a rite of passage for girls especially. And it's just like really weird <laughs> it's really twisted um and you know i never read it, the, the same girl that turned me on to go ask alice is the one who introduced me to flowers in the attic mm. i never read it but i bought it and it freaked me out so i like gave it to my mom um <laughs> and then you know later i 
I read the synopsis of it and it has always kind of haunted me just because it's like just, but I guess what I wonder, and I'm not, I have not answered your question. I'll have to think about like what a good angle would be, but I just, like you said, it. (laughs) maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's rite of passage novels. I mean, maybe there's like some whole thing about that, but I mean, like a rite of passage spectacular. I don't know if that's too (laughs) good, but I love that. But I do wonder what, you know, what is it about that book that has such a hold on young girls? Yeah. That's kind of what, what, I wonder about. I mean, there's like the sexuality that you do find in horror, and then there's the taboo aspect. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like a lot of horror for kids and teens is based on this idea of adults being useless at best and dangerous at worst. So this, you know, spoilers for Flowers in the Attic. So to have a a book where the premise is that like your mother locks you and your siblings in an attic on purpose and just carries on living her life um, is like so dark in a way that like really hits to me like a kind of teenage nerve. And also this idea of like, like it's a story of like sexual competition between an adolescent girl and her mother. And it's about, incest and i think Mm -hmm. there's sexual assault as well and it's just it's like like thinking back to the thing like because i read a lot of true crime as a tween and teen girl and i feel like that like hit some of the same pressure points as this Mm -hmm. where it's like what kind of power do people think i have and what's the worst case scenario for how they're going to treat me because of it feels like one of the themes Right. Because that's something that like ripples through a lot of horror, right? Is that you will be punished for your sexuality. Yeah. Whether Um, you are aware of it or not, you're just screwed. Right. Is it the mother who locks them in the closet or is it the abusive grandmother? I feel like we're initially, I haven't read it in years, but what I I remember, which may or may not be true, is that initially we think it's the grandmother's choice, but then it turns out that the mother also wants them up there. But who knows? But I think I, the mother's definitely a bad guy, too. And I yeah, think tries I'm, to poison them with donuts, with poison on them. It's weird. Like, what is the appeal of reading stuff that is so kind of sadistic, really? And yet, you know, on my Apple News app, and the more you click on a certain kind of story, I believe the more you get that kind of story. And yeah. like, I'll just, you know, absentmindedly open it up. And then it's just like, instantly like click on the darkest most awful and it's always people magazine and it's yeah. like you know f- father murders you know wife and twin daughters and then i'm just right. like click i'm like why am i doing this but there's something that's you father know is and obviously father comp- son die in two separate car accidents on <laughs> yes. the same day yeah <laughs> and, you know there is just something that is so compelling about that transgressive stuff but mm. i don't yeah. know i remember with flowers in the attic i think i made it as far as like one of them wakes up and notices that there she like realizes there had been like a needle put in her arm. Mm. I think the grandmother had like drugged her. See, I or, totally I forgot that. This book is it, just a treasure trove. It's a treasure trove of, of awfulness. You know what <laughs> you know what else haunted me? And I know that you've done multiple personality disorder, but mm-hmm. um in psychology in my psychology class in high school, we watched Sybil. Oh no. <laughs> Doesn't that seem borderline it seems like abusive? Your teacher was hungover. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It 
that scared the crap out of me for so like I don't even think I could handle watching it now. And back then they thought it was a true story. Right. Anyway. And they're like, okay. that makes it less scary if it really happened. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh okay. Oh, Whitney C says, What's a creature comfort of hers? Oh, okay. So of mine. Yeah. This is such a great question. I love this. Um so one like winter snack that I just devised that I think is really great is um, you make a thing of Lipton's instant chicken noodle soup and then you pour some instant grits into your soup when it's still really hot and stir it up and then you have like brothy grits, um, which I think are just fantastic. That's a creature comfort. Also just instant grits. I think that's the perfect breakfast. It's like it's zero effort and to me something about like a salty thing is much easier to have an appetite for first thing in the morning. Um, oh, and I have this heated mug. It's like a, um, a mug that keeps your beverage hot for hours, which is someone who takes forever to drink a single cup of coffee. I really appreciate. So yeah, those are some things that I love. Um, this mug, is it like, does the mug itself heat up or is it on a warmer? It is the mug itself. It's like some kind of, um, I don't know how it works, but the mug itself does the work. That sounds cool. Um, all right. Ulysses Atkins says, uh, does she really live across from a scrapyard? Oh, I did it one time. <laughs> that was, I um, lived in a house in Philly for several months um, immediately pre-pandemic that was across the street from a place where they would be like, picking up cars with a big magnet and crushing them. And it always made me think of the um, climax of the brave little toaster. <laughs> it just sounds very loud. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's do just me or everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? This is like, there's nothing scandalous about this at all, but I've never told this to anyone. Oh my God, um, exclusive. <laughs> so, okay. So when I drive to my parents' house um, from the city, I will go over, I guess describe exactly where this is. And then if you know, if you live nearby, you can try this sometime or you can, you know, at least picture it. So I have to drive over the Fremont Bridge in Portland and then take the um the exit that puts you on highway 30 and so the game that i play with myself and this is i worked out for me maybe two times in 10 years for the record <laughs> is at the top of the fremont bridge i stop giving the car gas and then i see if i can coast on the very long downhill enough so that i maintain speed to get through the first light after i get on the highway and it almost never works. And I always try to make it work. And I guess my like me or everyone is like, do other people have like, not just like, do you try and like coast from the top of a hill to the bottom or to some landmark? Like, do you play like a game with yourself while driving? But like, is there a specific place where you always have to do that, even yeah. if it doesn't work? Do you now are you like, do you do you feel like if it works, then a, then you'll have a good day? Or is there like any sort of luck or superstition involved? You know, it just like 
it's so hard for it to happen that it's just really cool when it does. It's like that thing in the office where they're like staring at the DVD menu, <laughs> waiting for the the bouncing icon to go straight into the corner. It's like that. It's like, <laughs> it's just very special. <laughs> I'm on my way to Portland to try it out now. <laughs> um, and then also, do you have a Hey Go Fuck Yourself? Yes. I mean... It's funny because I feel like I spend most of my day feeling like really hateful. But when I'm asked to think of a specific instance, I'm like, man, what do I hate? So many things. But like, oh, I know. Okay. This is a big one. Um, It's very important. Hey, go fuck yourself. Whoever's job it is to give fake coffee cups to people in TV shows. They're always Mm. empty. I can always tell. Why not just put something in them? It doesn't have to be liquid. It could be just anything. It's the like an actor holding a coffee cup. I mean, this has liquid in it. I'm holding a can, but they're just like, oh, thanks for this coffee. Let right. They're waving it around. Wave it around and toss it up in the air and just like make it obvious that it weighs nothing. Just like. Do better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, prop designers. Hey, 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 go fuck yourself. Sarah, it was so nice having you on the show. It was so nice getting to know you. Please tell everyone um, where they can find you, what they should look out for, uh, do your plugs, etc. Yeah. Um, Listen to You're Wrong About if you want to hear about misremembered history and tabloid phenomena. I'm currently doing a series on the Amityville Horror which um, is so much fun and where, spoiler, it turns out that the real horror was your dad all along um, and to you are good a feelings podcast about movies wonderful and the Amityville horror uh, episodes you're doing those are with Jamie Loftus right yeah yeah those are yeah, great we, and she's, she's great we had her on recently um, and uh, and are you on social media do you do social media very much yeah I am on Twitter at remember underscore Sarah that is a very funny joke that is still topical today <laughs> Um, and uh, if you like what you're hearing and even if you don't please leave us a five star review leave us a, a nice a five star rating and then also a nice comment please I'm just straight up asking for it at this point um, it just helps out the show so much and I, I recently discovered that you can also review podcasts on Spotify not the whole like not the whole comment but the review so wherever you're I, so I have a feeling wherever you're listening you can do this so rate the podcast won't you it helps out um, follow me on social media at Allison Rosen on Twitter and Instagram submit your your own just mirror everyone's to at A-R-I-Y-N-B-F on Twitter use the hashtag J-M-O-E just mirror everyone I already mentioned Patreon listen to my other podcasts Childish and Upworthy Weekly um, but yeah I think that's it Sarah thank you again listeners thank you for listening I love you you matter goodbye hey about the Allison Rosen Show. We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Allison Rosen is your new best.